Welcome to Diffusion, the national science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Lindsay Gray will talk about glow worms and the way that their prey take a shine to them. I'm going to present the first of a two-part series on the life and work of Ernest Rutherford, and there'll be plenty of more good, juicy science. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore, and first up we have the news with Richard Coots. In Diffusion Science News this week, vaccines for flesh-eating viruses, holy space travel, baked bean blues, but first, Genesis. Today we worry a comet strike might end life on Earth. But a team from the Australian National University believes comet bombardments might have been vital to starting life on our planet. The team reckons the extra geological activity, such as volcanic eruptions, caused by massive comet impacts between 2 and 4 billion years ago, helped create the perfect environment for the first microorganisms. These early bacteria lived on the ocean floor metabolising water-soluble iron and depositing layers of iron-rich sediments across the globe. The scientists found the sediment layers strongly correlated with periods of major comet and asteroid bombardment, suggesting the comets were necessary to release the heat and iron-rich minerals from the Earth's crust, encouraging the bacteria to grow. A treatment for Ebola... That's what U.S. Army medical researchers may be closer to after studying a vaccine for the closely related Marburg virus. The scientists found that monkeys infected with the deadly Marburg virus quickly recovered when injected with an existing Marburg vaccine, while untreated monkeys soon died. Marburg killed 300 people last year, or 90% of those infected. Chief researcher Thomas Gisbert said his team were really pleased with the results and hoped they would translate to humans. If you're a Muslim, you should kneel to pray five times a day, facing Mecca. But what do you do if you're in outer space? This is a serious question facing the Malaysian Space Agency as they prepare to send their first cosmonaut into space. Russia is offering Malaysia the chance to get one of its citizens to fly aboard one of its Soyuz rockets launching in October 2007. The trip includes a six-day stopover on the International Space Station and Professor Zainal of the University of Malaysia has written a program for handheld computers to help solve the prayer conundrum. The program helps cosmonauts sync up with Earth time and tells them which way they should face. As for kneeling in space, that could be the tricky part. Beans may lose their reputation as the musical fruit thanks to the work of a pair of Venezuelan researchers. They've discovered that adding a little bit of bacteria to your beans before cooking them may be just the treat to reduce the flatulence they can cause. Beans of several varieties are an important source of nutrients for many people around the world. However, their appeal is seriously reduced by their orchestral side effects. Farts, as they're commonly known, are caused when bacteria in the large intestine breaks down food not already digested higher up in the gut. The scientists found that fermenting the beans in a little lactobacillus casei and lactobacillus plantarium reduced the gas-producing compound by 88%.
Lindsay Gray will now tell us a little about some fascinating flies with alluring bioluminescent backsides. I went on an adventure last week to the Wollamai National Park in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales and I went for a very exciting exploration around a locality known as Nunes, which is about 30 kilometres from the mining and tourist town of Lithgow. If I had visited Nunes any time between the 1900s and the 1930s though, I would have had a very different experience indeed. Turns out Nunes was once home to a large shale industry, where shale was mined and subsequently refined into oil, primarily kerosene. The topography around Nunes is anything but flat, and many deep cuttings and tunnels had to be carved into the huge sandstone outcrops and cliffs that characterise the region. A railway line existed between Nunes and Lithgow, and steam trains laden with shale products regularly made their way via the cuttings and tunnel through the rough terrain. When burnt, shale oil doesn't release as much energy as an equivalent mass of coal would, and as a great deal of coal was being discovered in the Lithgow region in the first half of the 20th century, shale mining at Nunes became comparatively unprofitable. By 1940, the entire railway line was dismantled and the mining infrastructure was abandoned. Though almost every sleeper and every piece of track was carried away, some features of the Wollamai Railway could not be removed, and lucky for us, and some baby flies, the two impressive tunnels carved out over a hundred years ago remain. The longest tunnel runs through the sandstone for over 400 metres, and as it is a semicircle in formation, sunlight cannot penetrate from one end to the other. I can testify that a walk taken through the cold and damp tunnel is made in spooky pitch-black darkness. Turns out damp dark caves are the habitat of choice for a very peculiar fly known as a fungus gnat. It looks something like a mosquito. And in the 56 years since the last bellowing steam train plunged through our tunnel, fungus gnat larvae have colonised its moist roof and walls. Fungus gnat larvae are more affectionately known as glowworms, and our tunnel is in turn affectionately known as the glowworm tunnel. But as fungus gnats are a type of fly, and as fly larvae are technically called maggots, the tunnel should really be called the glow maggot tunnel. Let's see if it catches on. So why would our gnat maggots want to live on and glow from the walls of a pitch black tunnel? Well, we can get to the bottom of this problem by heading to the bottom of the fungus gnat maggot. Literally. Inside the rear end of every tiny maggot lie a pair of excretory ducts known as malphigian tubules. These are sort of analogous to our kidneys. The terminal ends of these tubules lie very near the surface of the maggot's skin, and it is from these that the blue light generated by the maggots emerges. The blue light, shining from the maggots behind, is then focused into a small prey-luring snare. And this snare is attached to the maggot's backside. Light is first channelled into a skinny thread of strong silk, and this is spun by the maggot. This thread behaves as an optical fibre. Light rays can pass longitudinally down through the thread, but they cannot escape out through its sides. The blue light travels straight down the thread for about two centimetres, where it enters a very sticky blob-like structure, also made by the maggot, composed of silk and mucus. Unlike inside the optical fibre thread, light rays can escape through the sides of the mucousy blob, and the blob glows a beautiful icy blue. Not all the light rays are lost through the mucus blob though, and some are rechanneled into another length of optical fibre thread on the blob's other side. 
Each fungus gnat maggot is able to construct a snare of up to six glowing blobs suspended by optical fibre silk. When viewed, each snare looks like a little row of stars snuggled into the rocky wall of the tunnel. The maggot's prey, which are typically small flying insects that are attracted to light, including adults of their own species, become glued to the sticky blobs. The prey's presence is registered by the maggot's bottom by vibrations received via the silk thread. The maggot will then turn off its glow and emerge from its hide at the end of the snare to consume its meal. So how on earth do maggot kidneys make blue light? It's thanks to an amazing molecule known as luciferin, so named after Lucifer, which literally means light bearer. Luciferin is abundant in the cells at the end of the maggot's Malfigian tubules, and through altering the amount of energy delivered to the luciferin molecules in these cells, the maggots can turn their lights on and off. When just the right amount of energy is supplied, the luciferin molecule joins with an oxygen atom to form a very unstable compound called oxyluciferin. The chemical bonds that form between oxygen and luciferin have a lot of energy tied up in them, but because oxyluciferin is so unstable, these energetic bonds quickly break, releasing all of their energy. Unlike in many chemical reactions, the energy released is not in the form of heat, but in the form of light. Up to 100% of the energy released through the breakdown of oxyluciferin is cold light. Thousands of organisms can bioluminesce thanks to their possession of oxygen and luciferin. From mushrooms and millipedes to plankton and now genetically engineered potatoes. In fact, if you visit the sea at night, splash your hands in a rock pool and you'll see thousands of planktonic organisms brightly bioluminesce. Female fungus gnats lay their eggs directly onto the walls of the glowworm tunnel and they quickly hatch into maggots. These maggots live on prey caught via their glowing snares for a few months until they grow to about 3 centimetres. The maggots then enter pupation and after a period of a week or two they emerge as adults. Adult fungus gnats are poor flies and the poor pets only live for a few days. If you'd like to visit the Nunes Glowworm slash Glow Maggot Tunnel, keep in mind that the maggots don't like torches being shined directly on them. It frightens them and they turn off their food-gathering snare. And please don't touch the snares. It destroys them. That was Lindsay Gray showing us that light really can shine out of at least one organism's arse. Next up, we've got Big Ernie Rutherford, so stick around. You're listening to Diffusion.
There's a picture opposite me of my primitive ancestry, which stood on rocky shores and kept the beaches shipwreck free. Though I respect that a lot, I'd be fired if that were my job. After killing Jason off and countless screaming Argonauts, blue bird of friendliness, like guardian angels, it's always near. New canary in the outlet by the light switch. The greatest revolution in physics in the 20th century has got to be the quantum revolution, which dissected the internal workings of the atom and gave us a strange, counterintuitive illustration of the subatomic world. I'd like to talk about the man who got the quantum revolution started by being the first to give us a glimpse. Ernest Rutherford was the man and has been described as being to the atom what Charles Darwin is to evolution or Albert Einstein is to relativity. Rutherford was a New Zealander and was born in rural Nelson near the north coast of the South Island. He showed scientific aptitude from an early age and won a scholarship to Canterbury College at the University of New Zealand. He stayed there from 1890 to 1894 and completed three degrees, a Bachelor of Arts in Pure and Applied Mathematics as well as Latin, English, French and Physics, a Bachelor of Science in Geology and Chemistry and a Master of Arts with double first-class honours in Mathematics and Physics. His speciality was electricity and magnetism and it is in these fields that he is most remembered. By the time he left Christchurch, Rutherford was still only 23 and a highly skilled young scientist with a reputation of brilliance in experimental research. He had also won another scholarship, which allowed him to go anywhere in the world as a graduate research student. He elected to go to Cambridge to work with Professor J.J. Thompson at the Cavendish Laboratory because he regarded the Cavendish as being at the forefront of research. Thompson, who was just about to discover the electron, didn't take long to realise that Rutherford was an extraordinary researcher, and after Rutherford had started the wireless age by working out how to detect electromagnetic waves, invited him to join in a study of the electrical conduction of gases. This led to Rutherford using the various rays from radioactive substances, and finally to his lifelong interest in the nature of radioactivity. In 1898, he discovered two types of radiation which he named alpha and beta rays. In conjunction with Thomson's work, it was soon shown that beta rays were high-speed electrons and later that alpha rays were helium nuclei stripped of their electrons. That same year, 1898, Rutherford accepted a professorship to McGill University in Montreal. After returning to New Zealand in 1900 and marrying a young woman called Mary Georgina Newton, 
He brought his new bride to Canada and promptly discovered the noble gas radon, chemically unreactive but radioactive by itself. In the fullness of time, Rutherford realised that many heavy atoms will undergo decay into slightly lighter atoms, and he started to receive worldwide attention with the publication of his first book, Radioactivity, in 1904. In 1908, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, quote, for his investigations into the disintegration of the elements and the chemistry of radioactive substances. This left Rutherford a bit bemused. He'd always regarded himself as a physicist and told friends that the fastest transformation he knew of was his, from physicist to chemist. In 1907, Rutherford was back in England, having accepted a chair at Manchester University. He got back into the lab and, so the legend goes, would encourage his research students by strolling through the laboratory singing Onward Christian Soldiers. He soon demonstrated that, yes, alpha particles were helium nuclei and, together with Hans Geiger, developed the radioactive sensory apparatus that would bear Geiger's name. In 1908, Geiger told Rutherford that a young undergraduate called Ernest Marsden was ready for his own project, and Rutherford set Marsden the task of investigating whether alpha particles were reflected from metals. Marsden set up an experiment where he fired alpha particles at a thin sheet of gold and through a microscope observed their scattering as they passed through the gold and landed on a fluorescent screen. Quite unexpectedly, some of the deflected alpha particles came back at the alpha source and were observed on a second screen which was placed near it. This backscattering, which caused Rutherford to say it was like firing a 15-inch naval shell at a piece of tissue paper and having it come back and hit you, was the impetus for Rutherford's model of the atom, the first description to attain any accuracy. Alpha particles, being helium atoms stripped of electrons, are thus positively charged. In Marsden's experiment, a large majority of the alpha particles passed straight through the sheet of gold. A smaller percentage were deflected off at oblique angles, and very small, a very small percentage were directly repelled backwards to be observed on the back screen. Rutherford realised that the atom was nuclear in character, that the nucleus was positively charged, very, very small, very, very dense, and surrounded by very, very, very small orbiting electrons. Most of the atom was thus empty space, which is why most of the alpha particles fired at it passed clean through it. However, these particles that passed close to the nucleus were deflected because they were positively charged, and so was the nucleus, so the two positive charges repelled each other and the alpha particle flew off at an oblique angle. And those particles that were fired directly at the nucleus did a complete 180-degree turn upon being repelled and were observed on the back screen, like a squash ball landing on the back wall of a court. This was in contrast to the model postulated by J.J. Thompson, who envisaged the atom as like a plum pudding. The electrons were like the raisins in the pudding, and the pudding itself was a uniform sphere of positive charge, balancing the negative charge of the electrons. Rutherford's experiments showed this to be untrue. However, according to classical electromagnetic theory, Rutherford's model of the atom was unstable. If the electrons and nucleus were like a little solar system, with the electrons orbiting the nucleus like little planets, then, according to classical physics, the electrons would radiate away their energy and collapse into the nucleus. How this conundrum was resolved, I'm going to save for the second part of this series. I thought I could cover the life of Rutherford in one feature, but soon realised that it would take two to do justice to, the, to this extraordinary man. Stay tuned. It gets pretty exciting.
And finally, scientists have discovered a bacteria-fighting compound 100 times more effective than penicillin, and it's right here in Australia. You can find it in wallaby milk. Um, getting this from the Sydney Morning Herald, just to quote my sources. Researchers have found the highly potent compound, which is tagged AGG01, was active against a wide variety of fungi and bacteria, including antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Research team leader Dr Ben Cox said the discovery could have a profound impact on both human and animal health. He said this compound has the potential to be commercially synthesised and may prove vital in the war against increasingly resistant human and animal diseases. So how about that, guys? Looks as though those little bugs might just have something coming back at them a little more potent, efficacious than uh, penicillin, shall we say. That's really good news because, I mean, I know everybody's very worried about these superbugs that um, people Mm -hmm. are finding outside the hospitals as well as inside them lately. Yeah, yeah. My old man used to say, uh, if you want to get sick, go along to hospital. Goodness knows what you'll pick up. So. Are we going to be milking the wallabies? I hope so. I mean, I don't know what the wallabies have got to say about <laughs> that, but, um, you know, so you've got to get inside the pouch too, don't you, because they're marsupials, no. wouldn't you? makes me wonder what we're being exposed to here in Australia if our native animals need to have such potent milk. Well, what, it is, what it is that they're um, exactly, yeah. creating that potency for. Well, according to this report, it's found to be effective against a relative of the hospital superbug MRSA, not quite sure what that sounds for. Oh, sorry, golden staff, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. As well as uh, Escherichia coli, Streptococci, Salmonella, Bacillus subtilis, Pseudodominus species, Proteus vulgaris, and Staphylococcus aureus. So, now they've there just you got go. it on animals. Now they've just got. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> our producer there, ladies and gentlemen, right? He's a funny guy. No, exactly. Tested on animals first to make sure it's good for them. <laughs> well, I've already tested on wallabies, I suppose. Glass of milk Standing in between extinction In the cold and explosive Radiating growth So the warm blood Flows through the large Four-chambered heart Maintaining The very high Metabolism rate They have Mammal Mammal Their names are called They raise a paw the back That it once was there From the embryonic whale To the monkey with no tail So the warm blood flows With the red blood cells Lacking nuclei Through the large four-chambered heart Maintaining the very high Metabolism rate they have i 
And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, we really like the last part, then email us at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion, D-I-F-F-U-S-I-O-N, at 2ser.com. Or check out our podcast feeds at feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. That's feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. Contributing to the program were Lindsay Gray, Richard Coots, yours truly, Lachlan Watmore, and of course the great Ludwig van Beethoven. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. My name's Lachlan Watmore and join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wonders next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.